Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Elder Ballard blows up the church. This past Sunday evening, November 19th, 2017, Elder Ballard and Elder Oaks held a face-to-face broadcast with the young single adults of the church. Over two weeks prior to this face-to-face presentation, Elders Ballard and Oaks produced a promotional video, which was released by the church. In that promotional video, Elder Ballard admitted that there were a lot of questions that they were receiving from the young single adults of the church that they did not know the answers to, and then very candidly said that those are the questions that they would avoid. So, my expectations of what would happen at this face-to-face presentation were severely reduced. I expected that Elder Ballard would be true to his word. They would winnow out the difficult questions. They would focus on the bland questions and give appropriately bland and thoroughly expected responses. And for the most part, that is what happened in the face-to-face from last Sunday, November 19th. However, Elder Ballard shocked me and shocked the world of Mormonism and those interested in Mormonism by making an absolutely unforced error. At about 42 minutes into the face-to-face presentation, and not even in response to one of the questions, Elder Ballard declared that the church does not hide anything from its members. He said that the church does not hide anything from anybody, that he and Elder Oaks are thoroughly familiar with the history of the church. They know the integrity of the church leaders, and he stated that the church throughout its history has never hidden anything from anybody. And he chose, as his illustration for this point, the first vision accounts. As I say, he is not responding to a question, but he obviously is prepared to speak on this issue because he has brought with him a black binder in which are some papers, which he opens up at this point in order to reference a 1970 article in the Improvement Era written by James B. Allen about the eight accounts of the first vision. James B. Allen was taking the four accounts that come directly from Joseph Smith and adding to those four other accounts that are claimed to have been heard from Joseph Smith by other authors who then wrote them down. The point that Elder Ballard is trying to make is that the church is not hiding the first vision accounts. Rather, the church has been publishing the different first vision accounts since 1970, which is 47 years ago. Now, he did not mention any general conference talks in which this subject has been addressed because, well, there aren't any. But he does have this article from 1970, and this is the quote from Elder Ballard that rocked the world and blew up the church. Play the tape. And, and some, uh, some are uh, saying that the church has been hiding the fact that there is more than one version of the, of the first vision. Why would they say that, Elder Ballard? Could it be perhaps because the church did attempt to hide the different versions of the first vision, especially the 1832 account? Which is uh, just uh, not true. This is the point in the talk where Elder Ballard begins digging himself deeper and deeper into the hole, and we see the reason he is digging a hole is ultimately to plant explosives. The facts are we don't study, we don't go back and search what has been said on the subject. Here, Elder Ballard engages in the age-old tactic of blaming the victim. It is the member's fault for not knowing that the church was hiding the First Vision accounts. He goes on. For example, Dr. James B. Allen of the BYU in 1970, he, he, he produced a, uh, an article for the church magazines explaining all about the different versions of the first vision. Well, actually, James B. Allen does not explain all about the different versions of the first vision account in the article. What he does, rather, is give a brief overview of the subject with an eye toward minimizing the discrepancies between the different accounts and focusing on the similarities. The apologetic bent of the article is made clear at the outset when, in the introduction, he describes the bombshell revelation of the 1832 account of the First Vision as a, quote, gentle surprise to Mormon scholars, unquote. Elder Oaks goes on to make a joke about this. How long ago was that article? 1970. That was back in 1970. So been hiding that for a long time. Yeah. 
<laughs> oh, good one, Elder Oaks. But of course, Elder Oaks' joke is meant to hide the fact, of which he is perfectly well aware, I presume, that for three decades, Joseph Fielding Smith hid the 1832 account of the first vision in his safe, and it was only released to the public in 1965 after its existence was leaked to the press. But it's this, it's this, it's this idea that the church is hiding something, that, which we would have to say as two apostles who have covered the world and know the history of the church and know the integrity of the first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve from the beginning of time. So here Elder Ballard is saying that he and Elder Oaks are two apostles. They are two senior apostles. They are well familiar with the history of the church and with the leadership of the church. And he is about to make a blanket pronouncement based upon his special position and insider knowledge. And what is that proclamation he is going to make? Listen to it. There has been no attempt on the part in any way of the church leaders trying to hide anything from anybody. Elder Ballard boldly proclaims, that no church leaders have ever tried to hide anything from anybody. And now he segues, as is customary at this point, into the Joseph Smith Papers Project. Now, on the one hand, the church's efforts in publishing the Joseph Smith Papers does show a tendency toward more transparency. It has nothing to do with whether the church has hidden things from its members in the past, as Elder Ballard denies, or whether it currently continues to hide things from the members, as Elder Ballard denies. It is what we in the business like to call a red herring. Now we've had the Joseph Smith papers. We didn't have those where they were in our hands now. And and so we're learning more about the prophet Joseph. As wonderful we are. There's volumes of it. There's so much of in those books now in my bookshelf. Maybe you've read them all, but I haven't got them. I'm a slow reader. That much. The Joseph Smith Papers Project is sizable. It is so large in so many volumes that Elder Ballard has not read them all. Elder Oaks apparently has not read them all, nor should any member of the church reasonably be expected to have the time to read them all. Though they are out there, they are largely unaccessed and inaccessible due to time constraints, at least for the non-scholar average member of the church, which gives the Joseph Smith Papers Project the effect of if not the appearance of, being a document dump. Now, having used the 1970 Improvement Era article on the First Vision accounts and the Joseph Smith Papers Project as his examples, Elder Ballard concludes with the ultimate reason why it is that you should trust him that the church leaders have never hidden anything from anybody. And that simple reason is that you should trust him that the church leaders have never hidden anything from anybody. Here he goes. So, just... Trust us wherever you are in the world and you share this message with anyone else who raises the question about the church not being transparent. We're as transparent as we know how to be in telling the truth. We have to do that. That's the Lord's way. That is the end of the quote from Elder Ballard. We need to trust him that he's telling the truth that the church leaders have never hidden anything from anybody. They're being as transparent as they know how to be, and they have to tell the truth, because that is the Lord's way. There are a number of things that I could talk about in relation to the face-to-face presentation, but for purposes of this podcast, I am going to focus exclusively on this statement by Elder Ballard. Elder Ballard has had a bit of a rocky road in public statements he has made leading up to this face-to-face presentation. I have collected four of them, and I want to quote them for you now, because Elder Ballard, even in the space of a year, and in fact in the last couple of months leading up to this presentation, has had problems keeping his story straight. It is hard to figure out where he is coming from because he seems to change his position with some frequency. For example, in a CES address on February 29th, 2016, Elder Ballard said, quote, Gone are the days when a student asked an honest question and a teacher responded, Don't worry about it. Gone are the days when a student raised a sincere concern and a teacher bore his or her testimony as a response intended to avoid the issue. Gone are the days when students were protected from people who attacked the church. Now, when Elder Ballard said this in the CES address in February of 2016, this comment was greeted with cheers from some quarters. Indeed, it was time for the church to start answering questions and not say, don't worry about it, or bear their testimony in order to avoid answering 
the issue. However, in a seeming contradiction to this position, in the promotional video to this very young single adult face-to-face presentation, which was issued in early November of 2017, Elder Ballard says that, to be honest, he does not have answers to some of the questions that are being asked by the young adults, and that those are the questions he avoids. How do we square that confession by Elder Ballard in early November of 2017 with what he said back in February of 2016? Is he not admitting that what he is actually doing is contradicting the advice he was giving the CES teachers in early 2016? But the contradictions continue in another statement by Elder Ballard, this one from the most recent General Conference in October of 2017, Elder Ballard warned, quote, Be aware of organizations, groups, or individuals claiming secret answers to doctrinal questions that they say today's apostles and prophets do not have or understand. End of quote. In seeming contradiction to this, in a devotional address at BYU, one week before the face-to-face presentation, a devotional address held on November 14th, 2017, Elder Ballard says the following, I am a general authority, but that doesn't make me an authority in general. I worry that members expect too much from their leaders and teachers, expecting them to be experts in areas and topics well beyond their expertise. If you have a question that requires an expert, please take the time to find an expert to help you. Now, one could argue that maybe he's talking about astronomy or psychology or anything other than the doctrines of the church. However, he makes this statement in context of talking about the upcoming single adult face-to-face presentation, which is only five days away as of the date he gives this BYU devotional address. And he goes on to talk about the questions they've received, and mention some of the questions that are being asked by the young single adults with answers that he is giving to them. So, when he says, I worry that members expect too much from their leaders and teachers, expecting them to be experts in areas and topics well beyond their expertise, it sounds like he's talking about doctrinal questions about the church and history questions about the church. At least I think that is the natural and straightforward interpretation of what it is that he's saying. But how does that square with what he said in General Conference just last October? Be aware of organizations, groups, or individuals claiming secret answers to doctrinal questions that they say today's apostles and prophets do not have or understand. So that's what he said in General Conference, but in the BYU devotional on November 14th, only a month later, well, maybe a month and a half later, he says... If you have a question that requires an expert, please take the time to find an expert to help you. So as I say, Elder Ballard comes into this face-to-face devotional with a somewhat shaky track record on the subject of difficult issues in the church. Are these difficult issues something that teachers in the church should address with their students and not ignore, as he said in February of 2016? Or are they something that leaders and teachers in the church should ignore and avoid, as he said in the promotional video? Are these difficult issues something that people other than leaders who claim to have answers should be avoided? Or should we consult experts because the leaders don't know, as he has said in other statements? It is hard to figure out exactly where he stands on the issue, except that he seems to stand in different and sometimes contradicting positions depending upon the time of day. But in the face-to-face devotional, Elder Ballard outdoes even himself. He states that at no time during the history of the church have leaders of the church ever hidden anything from the members of the church. He goes on to say, that is not the Lord's way. The problem with Elder Ballard's statement is, it just is not true. I have assembled a list of 12 instances where church leaders have demonstrably hid things from members of the church which show that not only is Elder Ballard wrong when he says that the church leaders have never hidden anything from anybody, it also indicates strongly that Elder Ballard almost certainly knows that he's not telling the truth when he says that leaders of the church have never hidden anything from anybody, which means that even while he is saying the words, he is hiding things from the members of the church. First, let's go to the first vision accounts. Since Elder Ballard was kind enough to bring up these first vision accounts, and cite to a 1970 article in the Improvement Era in order to show that the church has been upfront and open and always honest about telling the truth about its history, let's go back just a little bit. In time, to put this claim in historical context, you may remember that about a year ago, Radio Free Mormon 
did an entire episode devoted to this issue. It talked about and demonstrated how Joseph Fielding Smith, the church historian, found the 1832 account of the first vision in a journal in the church archives. The 1832 account of the first vision, as you will recall, is significant because in it, Joseph Smith mentions seeing only one person in the first vision, not two, as in subsequent recountings. It is the first recorded version that we have of the first vision. It is also the only version that is recorded in Joseph Smith's own handwriting. Joseph Fielding Smith was a leader of the church. He was an apostle of the church. He falls under this category that Elder Ballard has said, leaders of the church have never hidden anything from anybody. What was his response when he happened upon the 1832 account of the first vision in the 1930s? What he did was he took a penknife, he cut the pages out of the book in which this was written by Joseph Smith, and he took those pages and he hid them in the vault in his office. Does that sound like church leaders hiding things from church members? The 1832 account of the first vision remained hidden in Joseph Fielding Smith's vault. Joseph Fielding Smith did not show this document, as well as other documents he had in his vault, by the way. It wasn't just this one thing that was sitting in his vault, but this was there in the vault. He would not show it to anybody unless they came in with authority from someone higher up the food chain than Joseph Fielding Smith in the church. And because Joseph Fielding Smith was an apostle, that food chain higher above him was extremely limited. I'm not going to go into all the details of that incident right now. You can go back and listen to the prior podcast. It's called Hiding Church History if you want the details. Suffice it to say that Joseph Fielding Smith hid the 1832 account of the first vision in his safe from the 1930s to the 1960s. It was in his safe for three decades. And the only reason Joseph Fielding Smith ever released it to the public is because the existence of that document, the 1832 account of the first vision, was leaked to the press. In other words, it was found out publicly that he had possession of this document. So what did he do? He surreptitiously took the 1832 account that he had cut out with a penknife from the diary or the journal in the 1930s and taped it back into the journal that he had cut it out of three decades before. He then arranged to have a graduate student, Paul Cheeseman, at BYU, directed toward its existence so that Paul Cheeseman could then write about it in his master's thesis. This was Joseph Fielding Smith's way of introducing this document into public discourse while maintaining plausible deniability that he had ever hid it in the first place. It was not until the mid-1960s that Paul Cheeseman wrote his master's thesis. And the church never published Paul Cheeseman's master's thesis. Or at least I should say, the first person or first entity to publish Paul Cheeseman's master's thesis was the Tanners. Now you can imagine what a firestorm of controversy and publicity, mostly bad, this caused the church. And so, not that long after, 1970, James B. Allen writes an article for the Improvement Era in which he mentions the 1832 account of the first vision. And if you actually look at the article, you will see that it does it very glancingly, very apologetically, by which I mean putting the best spin on it possible. And while it does mention that Joseph Smith recounts seeing only one person in the 1832 account of the first vision, it immediately glosses over it and tries to show why it's no big deal. So what Elder Ballard is doing is he's pointing to a 1970 article that talks about the different accounts of the first vision while entirely omitting the fact that the church leaders had hidden the first account, the 1832 account, for decades in the church safe in the historian's office so that it could not be seen by anybody. Making it even stranger is the fact that this 1970 article in the New Improvement Era that Elder Ballard refers to is not available on the church website. Let me repeat that. Elder Ballard refers to a 1970 article that's published by the church, and he says, the church is not hiding anything, and yet this article itself is not available on the church website. Is that hiding something? I don't know. It's certainly a strange situation, and I'll come back to that later. What has happened here is not that the church has not hidden things. What the church did was, it tried to control the information by hiding the 1832 account and then when it was leaked and it had to come out, 
they were forced to release it, and after they were forced to release it, then they tried to control the narrative. So once having lost the battle to control the information by hiding it, then they tried to control the narrative as they did in this 1970 Improvement Era article. And Elder Ballard continues to try and control the narrative by using the first vision accounts as an example of the church not hiding stuff, when actually it's a classic example of the church hiding stuff. The last thing I want to say about the first vision accounts is why is it that Elder Ballard is referring his audience to a 1970 Improvement Era article that is not available on the church website while not mentioning to his audience that they can find an essay about the different first vision accounts on the church website. One would get the idea that he doesn't really want to talk about the essays that are available on the church website. Instead, he'd rather talk about a 1970 article that is not available on the church website. Is Elder Ballard trying to hide something here as well? Now, the second example I want to talk about is about Joseph Smith lying about practicing polygamy. We know a couple of things. Number one, Joseph Smith practiced polygamy. Number two, Joseph Smith lied about it. In the church essay, where this subject is discussed, the church essay itself admits that Joseph Smith lied about practicing polygamy. Now, in the church essay, it doesn't say he lied about it because the church isn't going to say Joseph Smith lied about it. Instead, if you remember, the church admits that Joseph Smith issued, quote, carefully worded denials, unquote, about practicing polygamy, which is a nice way of saying he was lying about it. Now, by the way, I know that some listeners to this podcast believe in their heart of hearts that Joseph Smith did not practice polygamy. And I want to be sensitive to their feelings as much as I can. Even though I do not share that opinion, I do want to respect their opinions. But the fact is, it doesn't make any difference whether Joseph Smith did or did not practice polygamy as far as this argument goes, because the church in its essay admits that they believe that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy. So what we have is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints admitting in their essay, which is found, by the way, on the church website, that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy, and also admitting that Joseph Smith denied that he was practicing polygamy while he was practicing polygamy. He was hiding it. So from the LDS Church's perspective, which Elder Ballard represents, by the way, the church admits that Joseph Smith hid the practice of polygamy in which he was secretly engaged. And yet, Elder Ballard says that the church leaders have never, from the whole history of the church, ever hidden anything from anybody. So what I am saying here is that this is a second example of church leaders hiding things from the members in contradiction to what Elder Ballard proclaimed in the face-to-face -face devotional. The third example is post-manifesto polygamy. Now that's a big phrase. I expect that most of my listeners know immediately what I'm talking about, but let me break it down very quickly. In 1890, President Wilford Woodruff declared that there would be no more plural marriage in the LDS Church. You can find the manifesto printed in your triple combination under Official Declaration 1. This is what you will find in your scriptures written by Wilford Woodruff. He is responding to reports in the press that the leaders of the church have taught, encouraged, and urged the continuance of the practice of polygamy. Wilford Woodruff then says, in the most solemn manner, I declare that these charges are false. We are not teaching polygamy or plural marriage, nor permitting any person to enter into its practice. He goes on to say, inasmuch as laws have been enacted by Congress forbidding plural marriage, I hereby declare my intention to submit to those laws and to use my influence with the members of the church over which I preside to have them do likewise. This was a lie. Because after 1890, after the manifesto was issued, church leaders at the highest levels did indeed solemnize plural marriages among different members of the church. And not only that, Wilford Woodruff himself, seven years after he issued the manifesto, saying that they were not practicing plural marriage anymore, married another Wife. In addition to the other wives he already had, seven years after he issues the manifesto in 1897, he enters into another polygamous marriage. Was the church hiding anything there? So the first manifesto issued in 1890 said we're not practicing plural marriage anymore. And the second manifesto issued in 1904, 14 years later said, oh, this time we really mean it. That's why there was a need for a second manifesto. Not only was the church hiding 
its practice of plural marriage, its continuing practice of plural marriage between the Manifesto in 1890 and the Second Manifesto in 1904, the Church continued to hide this fact from its members afterward, so much so that D. Michael Quinn, who published a paper dealing with post-Manifesto polygamy, was excommunicated from the Church in 1993, largely because he published the scholarship on that subject. Does that sound like church leaders were trying to hide anything? Example number four is the subject of the Adam-God teaching of Brigham Young. Brigham Young taught that Adam was God. This was covered in a prior podcast by Bill Reel. The short story is that Brigham Young taught that Adam was God. He taught it numerous times in numerous venues over the course of 25 years. But after he died, the church gradually came to the point where it realized it didn't like the teaching and it was going to do away with the teaching. And the way they decided to do away with the teaching was to deny that Brigham Young ever taught it. So in 1976, Spencer Kimball, as president of the church, gets up in general conference and flat out denies that Brigham Young ever taught the Adam-God doctrine. And in the more recent church manual, teachings of the presidents of the church involving Brigham Young, on more than one instance, they have quoted Brigham Young from the very sermons in which he is teaching Adam God, but have quoted him so selectively and carved out his quotation and removed it so much from the context of what he is saying that it can then be used and was used in the church manual to promote the current orthodox teaching on the subject, which is Adam is not God. Does that sound like the church is hiding anything? And by the way, I congratulate the church for its efforts in publishing the essays on the church website. I do not think they go far enough. I still think they spin things. I still think they attempt to hide things. And I can document that, and maybe I will in a future podcast. The point I'm trying to make here is that it appears the essays are done, and there is no essay on the Adam-God doctrine. I don't know why that is, but I can guess that the church does not want to admit that Brigham Young taught the Adam-God doctrine because it feels that doing so would be throwing red meat to the polygamous sects that have broken off of the LDS church who do believe it and who also believe in and continue to practice polygamy. Example number five, Mark Hoffman. Now, you may remember Mark Hoffman. Back in the 1980s, in the early part of the 1980s, he was in the business of selling fraudulent documents to the LDS Church. The document that is most remembered is called the Salamander Letter. But there was another very controversial document which he sold to the LDS Church, and that was a document which was purportedly in the handwriting of Joseph Smith, and it dealt with his early days treasure digging. At the time, in the early 1980s, the church was still very much invested in hiding the fact that Joseph Smith was a treasure digger prior to his becoming the prophet of the LDS church. This letter was not faith-promoting. Mark Hoffman bypassed church archives and went directly to the office of Gordon B. Hinckley. Yes, it was Gordon B. Hinckley who was involved in this, and I know that may disappoint some people who have a high opinion of President Hinckley. At the time, he was not president. He was a counselor in the first presidency under Spencer W. Kimball. This was January of 1983. Mark Hoffman went to President Hinckley in his office with this letter and offered to sell it to the church. The letter referred to clever spirits that might guard treasure sites and recommended techniques for foiling them. Altogether, this letter was a very big embarrassment to the church. It is not known what was said by Mark Hoffman to Gordon B. Hinckley. What is known is that Gordon B. Hinckley took out a checkbook and wrote a check to Mark Hoffman for $15,000. Mark Hoffman took the check and Gordon B. Hinckley took the letter. Now what happened after this meeting in January of 1983 is significant. There were no press conferences about the letter. There were no articles in church magazines about the letter. In fact, Gordon B. Hinckley took the letter and squirreled it away and hid it with the idea in mind that it would not come to the attention of the members of the church. Does that sound like church leaders hiding things from the members, Elder Ballard? What ended up happening is that this letter was hidden by the church for about two years and would have remained hidden indefinitely except for the fact that Mark Hoffman called up the Los Angeles Times and leaked the fact that his own forged letter had been bought by the church and was in the possession of the church and told the Los Angeles Times 
what it contained. The Los Angeles Times contacted the church, asked for verification about whether they had bought this letter. They denied having bought the letter. The Los Angeles Times said they were going to run with the story anyway, and the church headquarters went into DEFCON 1 trying to figure out how it was they could release the letter in advance of the Los Angeles Times story. This is what the church does, and once again, this is a pattern. It's the same kind of thing that happened with the 1832 account of the first vision. You find something, or in this case, you buy something that is damaging to the church, you hide it away, you keep it hidden, you keep it secret, you keep it safe, but then if it gets leaked to the press and the public finds out that you have it, then what you do is you try and figure out a way as quickly as possible to release it publicly so that you can then look like, hey, you are being upfront about this the whole time. Well, I'm sorry, you do not get credit for being honest and open and transparent with your members. When you hide things, and the only reason that you release these things, which are damaging things, is because you got caught hiding them. That doesn't fly. That does not suddenly mean that you're not hiding things. It means you are hiding things and then you get caught. And by the way, these two examples, especially these two examples, where we know that the church hid documents that were damaging to church history and released them only after their existence was leaked to the press, is why it is that members of the church, when they find out about these episodes, lose faith in their leaders. They lose trust in their leaders. What was it you said, Elder Ballard? You said you can trust us that the church doesn't hide things. Well, when we know the facts, we know that we can't trust you, Elder Ballard. We can't trust any of the church leaders because we know that you will hide things and you will lie about things in order to protect us. I know that you think you're doing God's work. I know that you think you're protecting our testimonies. I know that you think that is more important to protect our testimonies and get us in the celestial kingdom than it is to give us the full truth which might remove us from the church, affect our testimonies, and keep us from being exalted. I understand where you're coming from, but the fact is that you cannot sit on a stage with Elder Oaks, and we'll be getting to Elder Oaks soon, believe me, he's not going to escape unscathed in this, and declare to the world that church leaders have never hidden things from anybody. The other point I was going to make about this is that when members find out that the church has lied to them, the church has hidden things, and has only released these damaging documents when they were caught hiding them, it makes us wonder what things do you have that are damaging to the church that are hidden away that you have haven't told us about and that you have not released to the public because their existence has not been leaked yet. Now, some may say that's an idle question because how can we know what's in the vaults? Well, how can we know what's in the vaults? All we know is that on at least two specific occasions with the 1832 account of the first vision and the treasure digging letter by Mark Hoffman, the church has an established track record of taking things damaging to the church, hiding them, and refusing to release them until their existence is leaked. And that leads us to wonder, what do you have now that's damaging to the church? that you haven't released because their existence has not been leaked. Okay, that was example number five. Let's go to example number six. Boyd K. Packer's talk, the mantle is far, far greater than the intellect. It is incredible to me that Elder Ballard would sit up there and say church leaders have never hidden anything from anybody when Elder Packer's talk, the mantle is far, far greater than the intellect, is a blueprint. It is a smoking gun. I did an episode on that talk. In fact, that was the first episode that I did on Radio Free Mormon called The Great Church History Cover-Up, which went into detail into this talk given by Boyd K. Packer, August 22, 1981, to the Church Educational System. In summary, Boyd K. Packer admitted that he knows there is damaging information about the church in existence. And he told the CES instructors, in other words, the seminary instructors, the teachers of the young people, the BYU professors, that they were not to talk about the damaging information, that they were not to publish the damaging information, that they were only to publish the faith-promoting, whitewashed, correlated, sanitized version of church history. He told them that they were supposed to hide the negative aspects of church history. And he went further than that and said that if anybody who was employed by the church disregarded his counsel and did publish negative aspects of church history, then they would be looking for a job and they would certainly be spending eternity someplace hotter than the celestial kingdom. Number seven, 
Now we get to Elder Oaks, because on August 16, 1985, four years after Boyd K. Packer gave his talk, The Mantle is Far, Far Greater Than the Intellect, Elder Oaks gave a talk to the same audience, to the CES, Church Educational System, people. And what he did was he reiterated the same position that Elder Packer had said four years previously. And by the way, yes, this is Elder Oaks, Elder Dallin H. Oaks. It's the same Elder Oaks who is sitting up there on the stage with Elder Ballard on November 19th, 2017, while Elder Ballard says that leaders of the church have never hidden anything from its members. This is what Elder Oaks said in 1985. I have chosen to speak on how church history should be read, especially the so-called history. Now, what Elder Oaks means by so-called history is negative information about the church. Yes, in any other context, it would be real history, but for him, it's so-called history. He goes on to say, the fact that something is true is not always a justification for communicating it. Let me say that again. The fact that something is true is not always a justification for communicating it. He is saying the exact same thing that Elder Packer said four years ago in his famous phrase that not all truths are useful. Elder Oaks believes the exact same thing. Just because something is true does not justify communicating it. So there are some truths that should be hidden. And then he goes on to make this astonishing admission. Elder Oaks, 1985. Balance is telling both sides. Well, I'm glad he knows what balance is. Balance is telling both sides. But he goes on to say, this is not the mission of official church literature. Can you believe that he said that? Yes, that's what he said. This is not the mission of official church literature. It is not the mission of official church literature to be balanced. It is not the mission of official church literature to tell both sides. He is totally on board with what Elder Packer said four years earlier. Now, in context, what Elder Oaks is saying is that it is the responsibility of the media to be balanced. It is the responsibility of the media to tell both sides because this is 1985, and right now, guess what's blowing up? If you said Mark Hoffman, you're right. All those documents are blowing up, and I'm sorry, that is an unfortunate pun. It was unintended, and it was said with absolutely no malice aforethought. And the media is coming out, and it is slamming church leaders for hiding the Mark Hoffman documents. And this is something I have to add in here. Dallin Oaks was one of the two top church leaders involved in this episode, who was involved in addressing the press, who was involved in press releases. The other one was Gordon B. Hinckley. If you go back and research this, you will find that this is the case. Dallin Oaks knew everything that was going on with the documents being purchased. He knew they were attempting to be hidden, and he knew that they were hidden until their existence was released to the press. That is why it is so phenomenal that Elder Oaks is actually on the same stage with Elder Ballard. When Elder Ballard is saying church leaders have never hidden anything, from anybody because Elder Oaks knows perfectly well that he has done exactly that. Getting back to Elder Oaks' quote, which I said in context, he's talking about the media. He's really complaining about the media slamming the church, and he's saying the media needs to be balanced. What he says is this, balance is telling both sides. This is not the mission of official church literature or avowedly anti-Mormon literature. Neither has any responsibility to present both sides. So he's saying that anti-Mormons have no responsibility to present both sides. But critically, he's also saying the same thing about the church. The church has no responsibility to present both sides of the issue. The church's only responsibility is to tell one side of the issue, the faith-promoting side, the faith-promoting history, and to disregard, to not talk about, to hide all the negative aspects of church history. That's example number seven. Example number eight is 1984. Boy, they're really cropping up here in the early 1980s, aren't they? This would be the general conference talk in October of 1984 by Elder Ronald Pullman. He was a member of the first quorum of the 70, and he gave a talk in general conference, which has become quite well known. The reason it became quite well known is because he said something very different from what other general authorities before and after have said. The main message of the church has been that you have to rely on your leaders from cradle to grave. You go along with what the church leaders say, no matter what it is, no matter what your personal feelings may be about it. When the leaders speak, the debate is over. What Ronald Pullman was saying was, yes, that's true in one's initial stages in the church. But ideally, the goal of the church is to have a person progress to the point where their center of authority is not in the leaders of the church, 
but is actually inside themselves. He got away somehow with giving this talk in General Conference in October of 1984, but as soon as he gave this talk, it was deemed to be improper, incorrect, it needed revision. So instead of publicly saying that Elder Pullman gave a talk which had some incorrect ideas in it and correcting the record, what the church did was something very different. What the church did was something surreptitious. What the church did was something that might be considered, oh, I don't know, hiding things. What they did was they had Elder Pullman go back into the tabernacle. They still had general conference broadcast from the tabernacle in 1984. Conference is completely over. Everybody's gone home. His talk is rewritten by somebody else, presumably, in order to change the meaning to make it match what it was he was supposed to say. He was marched back into the tabernacle. The cameras were set up again. He was recorded giving the new and improved version of the talk, and then that new and improved version, that changed version of his talk, was then substituted in for his real talk in the videotapes that were produced and distributed by the Church of General Conference. In fact, if you go to the church website and look up the 1984 October General Conference, you look up Elder Pullman's address, what you will find there is inserted in where he's giving his original talk is the new talk. And when you look at it and you know that that's what happened, it is quite obvious that is what is taking place. For example, if you go onto the church website and you look at all the speakers before him and all the speakers after him, you will see the lights come down slowly as they begin their talk and you will see the members of the Mormon Tabernacle Choir sitting behind them row upon row and you can see their figures as the lights go down and then it becomes black and you just see the speaker. There is one exception to that. It's Elder Pullman. When Elder Pullman gets up there, it's totally black behind him because there are no members of the choir there. There is no audience there. And in fact, it appears that there was a cough track that was added to his second talk to make it sound like there actually was an audience there in the tabernacle when there was no audience there. It's incredibly ironic, of course, that this happened in 1984. Thank you, George Orwell. And you can find the first version and the second version of Elder Pullman's talk on the Internet, together with all the differences. Let me just read you one which is illustrative. This is from the first version of Elder Pullman's talk. The orthodoxy upon which we insist must be founded in fundamental principles and eternal law. Now that remains the same in the new and improved version. But in the first version, he goes on to say, including free agency and the divine uniqueness of the individual. You see how it is that he focuses on free agency and the divine uniqueness of the individual. That is important to Elder Pullman. Once again, the quote, the orthodoxy upon which we insist must be founded in fundamental principles and eternal law, including free agency. This is the part that will be changed, including free agency and the divine uniqueness of the individual. In the new and improved version, this is what it was changed to. The first part is the same. The orthodoxy upon which we insist must be founded in fundamental principles, eternal law, and now the new part and direction given by those authorized in the church. So instead of the first version of the talk, where he focuses on free agency and the divine uniqueness of the individual as being fundamental to orthodoxy, it is changed in the new and improved version. Instead of free agency and divine uniqueness being important, now it's the direction given by those authorized in the church. As I say, that is merely an illustrative example to show the change between the first talk and the second talk. There are many, many other changes, deletions, and additions that were made between the two. And once again, you can find those on the internet. Getting back to Elder Ballard's quote, the church leaders have never ever hidden anything from anybody do you think that qualifies, Elder Ballard? Example number nine. I think I mentioned, maybe I didn't, I'm getting a little exercised here, about the 1970 Improvement Era article that Elder Ballard references. He has it in a little black binder with him on the stage. One of the ironies is that this article is not available on the church website. Yes, I did mention it. Now I remember. But it doesn't stop there. Not only is this Improvement Era article not available on the church website, no general conference talks before 1970 are available on the church website. Does that sound like they're hiding anything? Also, the Journal of Discourses are not available on 
the church website. Does that sound like they're hiding anything? And not only that, the lectures on faith are not available on the church website. You will recall, I did an episode on this as well, the lectures on faith were the doctrine in the Doctrine and Covenants. They were originally published in the first edition of the Doctrine and Covenants in 1835, where they remain for many, many, many years until the early part of the 20th century when they were finally removed with a new edition of the Doctrine and Covenants. So even though the Doctrine was taken out of the Doctrine and Covenants, the book still retained the name of Doctrine and Covenants. It was done without a church vote. And the reason why is because of lecture number five. There are seven lectures in the Lectures on Faith. Lecture number five taught a very different and conflicting idea about the nature of God from what the church believes today. It does not teach that God has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's, the Son also, but the Holy Ghost is a personage of spirit, as in the current Doctrine and Covenants. Instead, it taught that there were only two people in the Godhead, God the Father and Jesus Christ, the Holy Ghost not being a separate personage, but simply being the mind that is shared by the Father and the Son. And further, it taught that the Father does not have a resurrected body of flesh and bones. Jesus does, but not the Father. The Father instead is a personage of spirit in the Lectures on Faith. This is why it was removed from the Doctrine and Covenants in the early part of the 20th century. This is why I expect the Lectures on Faith are not available on the church website. Does this sound like church leaders are hiding things from the members? Example number 10. Now we come to 1993 when Elder Oaks got caught lying in public. And what he got caught lying about was the excommunication of one of the members of the September 6. His name was Paul Toscano. The problem here is that six people were excommunicated in September of 1993. It was widely thought and not without reason that these excommunications happening all at the same time to prominent people publishing on controversial church topics must be orchestrated by the highest levels of the LDS church. In other words, what are the odds that six different state presidents are all of a sudden going to be excommunicating six different people at the same time? The second part of the problem is that the church then, as they do today, was trying to float the story that that was not the case, that church leaders had nothing to do with these local disciplinary issues, that these really were just different stake presidents being moved upon by the Holy Ghost at the same time to excommunicate these six controversial scholars and authors. During this time period, the story began to leak out that actually that was not the case, that in fact, Elder Boyd K. Packer had been in contact with Paul Toscano's stake president, whose name was Carrie Hines. So going back to Elder Oaks, in a story run by the Arizona Republic who interviewed Elder Oaks, Elder Oaks reaffirmed that the sanctions on these different scholars were not part of an orchestrated effort to silence critics. And when Elder Oaks was specifically asked whether Boyd K. Packer had had any contact with Paul Toscano's stake president, Elder Oaks said, quote, I have no knowledge of whether he, Elder Packer, did meet with Hines, period, end of quote. Now remember, this statement by Elder Oaks is shortly after General Conference in 1993. It's October of 1993. The problem is that Elder Oaks was caught off base lying when he said he had no knowledge of whether Elder Packer had met with Hines, in other words, Paul Toscano, state president, because actually he did know that Elder Packer had met with Paul Toscano's stake president. And the fact that he knew it was told to Ezra Taft Benson's grandson, Steve Benson. You see, Steve Benson met with Elder Oaks and Elder Maxwell in September of 1993. And in that meeting, Elder Oaks specifically told Steve Benson that Elder Packer had had contact with Paul Toscano's stake president. So when Steve Benson heard Elder Oaks or read about Elder Oaks denying any knowledge of Boyd K. Packer meeting with the stake president, Steve Benson faxed Elder Oaks a letter reminding him that in a confidential September meeting, Steve Benson, Elder Oaks, and Elder Maxwell, Elder Oaks had said, speaking about Elder Packer, quote, you can't stage manage a grizzly bear. Unquote. Adding that, quote, it was a mistake for Packer to meet with Hines and a mistake for Hines to ask for the meeting. Unquote. So let me break this down. In a private meeting with Steve Benson in September of 1993, 
Elder Oak says that he does know that Elder Packer had a meeting with the stake president. Less than two months later, he's being asked questions by a reporter, and he says he doesn't know whether Elder Packer had any meetings with the stake president. He goes to the old, I have no knowledge of that routine, when he certainly knew very well, as manifested by the fact that he told it to Steve Benson. But we don't have to just go by what Steve Benson said in order to understand that this is what really happened. In other words, we don't have to just take Steve Benson's word over Elder Oaks because Elder Oaks then admitted the fact that he had misspoken, uh, which is a nice word for lied. After receiving Steve Benson's letter, Elder Oaks refused to discuss most of its contents. However, concerning his no-knowledge quote about the Packer-Hines meeting, he said it was a statement, quote, I could not defend. It was not a truthful statement. Period. End of quote. So Elder Oaks admitted that he told the press something that was not true when he said he had no knowledge about the meeting between Elder Packer and the state president. But Elder Oaks tried to shift responsibility away from himself to Steve Benson by blaming him for revealing the contents of a confidential communication. What Elder Oaks said about that to an AP reporter was, quote, Steve Benson is just going to have to carry the responsibility for whatever he relates about a confidential meeting, period, end of quote. There is nothing in there about Elder Oaks having to bear any responsibility for lying to the press. So that story seemed to get a bit complicated, but I wanted to try and make sure I explained it as clearly as I possibly could. In summary, Elder Oaks, yes, the same Elder Oaks who was on the stage with Elder Ballard, in 1993 knew that Elder Boyd K. Packer had been in direct communication with the stake president of Paul Toscano, one of the September 6. Yet, when asked about it by the press, he denied any knowledge of that. And later, when called on it, he admitted that his statement could not be justified. Does that sound like church leaders hiding things from the members, Elder Ballard? And how strange it is that you're sitting up there right next to the man who did it. Okay, that was example number 10. Example number 11 has to do with this entire face-to-face -face devotional. It is clear as crystal that this entire presentation has been organized. All the questions have been vetted in advance. We know that from the promotional video. We know from the introductory comments in the presentation itself. These questions have been vetted. Elder Oak says in the face-to-face -face that they have received over 4,000 questions and that they haven't read them all, but that they had help from unnamed sources collating and categorizing these different questions, and ultimately, these are the questions that were picked to be answered. They had several weeks to prepare. They had a lot of staff able to work on it to prepare this situation, because the last thing they want is some kind of crazy question or difficult question or question that they don't know the answers to, which they're going to try and avoid, coming at them from left field. Elder Ballard even has a notebook with him on stage so he can use it to refer to when he's answering some of the questions. So obviously he knows what's coming up next. This is a loosely scripted performance. And yet, at several points during the face-to-face -face presentation, they try to present it as if this is spontaneous and off the cuff. At the beginning, the young man who is hosting the presentation along with this young woman invites the people who are watching, the young single adults who are watching, to text in questions during the presentation. As if anybody can just text in a question and have it not vetted, not prepared for, not researched in advance, and have it asked off the cuff to these apostles. And the reason he does that is to make the entire presentation look like it's not scripted, which it obviously is. In fact, he follows up on that suggestion that people can text in their messages by announcing in the middle of the presentation a new question which he says has just been texted in by a young single adult somewhere in the world. And then he reads the question. That did not happen. There was no young single adult who actually just texted in a question in the middle of the presentation and then it was responded to by the two apostles without it first being vetted and prepared for on their part. So my question here under example number 11 is, does this count as deception? Does this count as hiding things? And in the very presentation in which Elder Ballard claims that church leaders have never hidden anything from anybody, are they in fact trying to hide the fact that this is a staged performance and that all the questions have been vetted in advance? It may seem a small thing in this context, but think about the national outcry that occurred when a similar thing was found to be happening not that long ago 
by a certain presidential candidate during a presidential debate, that she knew the questions in advance because they were being fed to her by Donna Brazil. She knew the questions in advance, so she was able to prepare the answers in advance while all the time giving the impression that she's fielding them off the cuff. All I'm saying is, most Mormons were very upset when they heard that news. And is it appreciably different to have the same thing happening when two leaders of their church are doing the same thing? Example number 12, which is astonishing, which is that, if you recall, Elder Ballard already said in the promotional video that was issued a little over two weeks before the actual presentation itself that they don't have answers to all the questions and that those are the questions they will avoid. So we already know from his own mouth that there are certain questions that they have received that they don't know the answers to, which I think really means they don't like the answers to and they don't want to give the answers to because then it starts going into those same negative aspects of church history that Elder Oaks in 1985 has already gone on record that the church has no responsibility to be talking about. We already know that there are certain subjects and certain conversations and certain questions that are off limits that are not going to be allowed to be asked because Elder Bowers Ballard said they're going to avoid those questions. And yet it's that same Elder Ballard who at the face-to-face -face presentation itself says that church leaders have never hidden anything from anybody. Well, are you a church leader, Elder Ballard? And do you think this qualifies as hiding something from somebody? Because if so, you have already refuted and contradicted your own statement in the face-to-face -face presentation by your statement in the promotional video for the face-to-face -face presentation. And finally, I've given you a dozen examples of church leaders hiding things from members of the church. I'll make it a baker's dozen and give you number 13, which is a quote from Elder Snow. Elder Snow is the LDS Church historian. He gave a statement on November 8th, 2013, and what he says is that the church in the past has not been transparent about its history and its information, that they're working on that, they're trying to be better, they're trying to be more transparent. But the logical conclusion of what he says is, if the church has not been transparent in the past, then church leaders have been, repeat it with me, hiding things from the members. Here's what Elder Snow says. I think in the past there was a tendency to keep a lot of the records closed or at least not give access to information. Uh, does that sound like hiding anything? He goes on. But the world has changed in the last generation. So now he not only admits that in the past the church has hidden things, He's going to talk about the reason that the church can no longer get away with hiding things and therefore why it is the church is not hiding as much stuff as it used to because of the internet. This quote establishes what I have said more than once, that the church was dragged kicking and screaming to the transparency table because of the internet. Here's this quote again. I think in the past there was a tendency to keep a lot of the records closed or at least not give access to information. But the world has changed in the last generation. With the access to information on the internet, thank you, Elder Snow, we can't continue that pattern. What pattern? Well, the pattern of hiding things. We can't continue that pattern. I think we need to continue to be more open. Notice the use of the word more. We need to be more open. We haven't always been open. We're not continuing to be open. He's not saying we'll be open in the future. He's saying in the past we have not been open, but we need to continue to be more open. This statement alone is in direct contradiction to what Elder Ballard said at the face-to-face -face devotional, November 19th, 2017. Let me read his quote again. This is what Elder Ballard said. Compare this with what Elder Snow said only four years ago. Quote, It's this idea that the church is hiding something, which we would have to say, as two apostles that have covered the world, and know the history of the church, and know the integrity of the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve from the beginning of time. There has been no attempt on the part in any way of the church leaders trying to hide anything from anybody, period, end of quote. So in conclusion, Elder Ballard claims that leaders of the church have never hidden anything from anybody at any time during the course of the church, even from the beginning of time. And tonight I have presented not one, not two, not three, but 13 different instances of where church leaders have hidden things from members of the church. Elder Ballard is not telling the truth. When Elder Ballard says, you can trust me 
the one thing we know is that we cannot trust him. And in fact, during this comment, Elder Ballard chides his audience about not researching and studying enough, that if they would have researched and studied enough, they would find things that had already been written about the different accounts of the first vision, like the 1970 article in the Improvement Era. He chides his audience for not doing enough research to realize that the church published on this 47 years ago, and he chides them about it in spite of the fact that this article cannot be found on the church website. But the flip side of this coin is even more damning, because if his audience had done half as much research on the two gentlemen addressing them at the face-to-face devotional, Elder Oaks and Elder Ballard, the audience would find out that these two apostles cannot be trusted to tell them the truth. That is the critical problem that the LDS Church faces today. They can either choose to be open and transparent about their history and about their doctrine, or they can cover it up and lie about it. Unfortunately, Elder Ballard and Elder Oaks specifically have chosen the second alternative. So when Elder Ballard says that church leaders have never hidden anything from anybody, not only is he lying, he is lying to cover up the lies. This is how bad it is getting in the LDS Church. This is why members of the church are more and more losing faith in their leaders. And they are losing faith in their leaders because more and more members of the church are finding out that their leaders cannot be trusted. And statements like this by Elder Ballard make it even more difficult to trust him and the other apostles of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This is how Elder Ballard blew up the church. That's about all for tonight. Until next time... This is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.